1: New Books Network welcomes Charlie Samuelson to an episode about his book, Courtly and Queer, Deconstruction, Desire, and Medieval French Literature. Dr. Samuelson taught at King's College London for three years before arriving at CU Boulder. Medieval French Literature is what he focuses on. His BA is from Amherst College and his PhD is from Princeton. He's interested in courtly literature of the both high and late middle ages. And he links two verse narratives, high medieval verse romance and late medieval ditz Amaro. Charlie, describe how you arrived at courtly text for your audience and what it means for you and your research background.
0: Of course, and thank you for this, uh, Nathan. Medieval thinkers often emphasized how things are arbitrary. And in particular, they use the image of Lady Fortune as a symbol of the world being arbitrary. And that's how I got to medieval literature. Um, It was not a direct path. It was as an undergraduate, I took some classes with an amazing professor, Paul Rockwell, who I enjoyed uh, working with. And then I thought, why not keep going? And then I became more and more interested as a graduate student. Within medieval literature, how I got to courtly literature, I mean, what exactly courtly literature means is not entirely clear. It basically means sophisticated and refined literature, both in an artistic sense and a political sense. And I got to courtly literature because of, how, of its sophistication and its refinement in, an, in a literary sense. It gives the reader a lot to do. And then I increasingly became interested in how this relates to or intersects with the more problematic notion of being sophisticated or refined in a political sense. And so I turned my energies to teasing out that relationship.
1: When does everything take place for you? What is your temporal focus and what year would you say marks a transition for poetics, if there is one?
0: Um, I study high and late medieval French literature. So f- literature from the 1100s through the early 1400s. And one thing I do in this book is that I question the traditional ways in which scholars divide up this period. So it's traditionally divided into two as it, as regards verse narratives, so just stories written in in poetic verse. And how it's divided is that somewhere around uh, the second half of the of the 13th century, with Jean de Mons, Roman de la Rose, it becomes a different ballgame. And what I I think it's important to challenge that narrative, I think that narrative is simplistic and that there are really that there are many benefits um, arising from, well, from taking it to task. And the problem with identifying traditions at spe- uh, transitions at specific times, it seems to me, is that it tends not to really work or be true. So at different points, people have a strategic interest in thinking that things were invented at certain times, and it tends to be that the real story is much messier. And often the real story is why we have an interest in thinking that things were invented at certain times. So what this book is doing is less thinking about, less identifying a transition in terms of medieval poetics than questioning um, how we tend to locate a transition
1: in the 13th century. And you write about historicism and post-historicism. Do you see your work as being interdisciplinary And what teaching methods would you suggest for a historian or another discipline? Great. Um,
0: Well, as you know, interdisciplinary is an academic buzzword. And so everyone is going to say their research is interdisciplinary, and they should. Um, In the case of this book, it's interacting with two other disciplines or tendencies. The one is Derridian deconstruction, as practiced both by Derrida and then by American thinkers, in particular Paul Demont. And what Derridian deconstruction does is it um, looks at how philosophical and literary systems are being undone at the same time as they are being built, and they're often more energetically being undone than they are being propped up. And then I also am in persistent dialogue with the queer theory most inspired by um, Derridian deconstruction. And so what I'm looking at is how one of these big, one of the big systems that is being constructed and unraveled at the same time is something like heteronormativity. And the argument is that it's being promoted in these medieval texts about love, but it's also simultaneously and even more energetically being prodded, undone,
1: played with, etc. Why is gender so relevant to your research in this book in particular? What does the topic of queerness do for your study? Great.
0: Well, courtly texts are about gender and sexuality, period. Um, They're about love, which tends to be articulated as a male subject's love for a female object. And this became this massive literary phenomenon in medieval Europe. So in a way, the question, I mean, this might sound cheeky, but really one would have to justify more studying these texts and not writing about gender than writing about gender, it seems to me. Um, gender is at, uh, in other words, gender is at the very center. Um, queerness is a somewhat different ballgame. My interest does not lie in defining queerness, which would be prescriptive, but in conceiving as queerness of queerness as that which resists form formations like heteronormativity, and that's in an antagonist antagonistic and also erotic relationship toward um, these uh, formations. So it's an intellectual, I see queerness as an intellectual framework that dialogues in compelling ways with courtly love as the major phenomenon in these literary texts.
1: Is there another genre of literature that you leave out of this book that might have relevance to your argument? And what is your thesis?
0: Well, let's start with what is there before we get to what isn't there, right? And the thesis is of this book is, in a way, pretty simple. At one level, it's that there's an artificial division that's been created by medievalists between two genres of verse narratives on the one hand, verse romance, and on the other, uh, late medieval d. And the argument there is that the, this division has occluded how the two genres not only have affinities with each other, but also comment on each other. And the second leg of the argument is that there's also an artificial division between these medieval texts and modern queerness, where the two also comment on each other. And they overlap with each other in ways that, um, in ways that um, are important to recognize insofar as they, um, as they allow these medieval texts to be more than just proto heteronormative in whatever way. And they ask really, and this challenging, this opposition um, raises really tough questions like, I mean, the big one is what does it mean if that something that looks a lot and smells a lot like modern queerness has really been there and arguably dominated since the very beginning of um, sophisticated literature about love? So it's a lot, to a lot to swallow. That's the thesis. Um, what I have left out of this book is a lot um, there. I'm talking about texts that um, texts that draw on work with lyric poetry, but I'm not really talking about lyric poetry itself. I'm not talking about various genres that would be interesting to um, include, like hagiography or saints' lives. And I'm not focusing on what people often focus on when they're talking about, when they're thinking about any form of interaction between the high and late middle ages in terms of verse narratives, which is, Jean de Mans, monde de la Rose. It seems to me in general that the more you put, the kind of the more you put into a work, a book, the more it becomes clear what you've left out. And so this book has a really, it has a large temporal range, several centuries. And so what I, I mean, sounds like a strange thing to say, but I hope I've made room for having left a lot out in a
1: way in this book. Curtis Runstiller was on our NBN podcast and he focused on alchemy and exemplary poetry in middle English literature. Did you listen to the interview and what similarities or differences do you arrive at in your own research?
0: Yeah, I listened to the uh, podcast yesterday. Uh, Thank you for directing me toward it. And I think the basic similarity is that um, for Curtis, like for me that it's a, these are not purely literary perspectives on the Middle Ages; that they reflect both. Um, both of us are working with the belief that literature is not just literature in the Middle Ages, and that that's deeply misleading. I think there are some specific affinities. Like um, he was talking about exemplary poetry, and in several of the readings, I'm talking about the use of examples, exemple, in late medieval. D in particular, and what I argue is that these examples are privileged sites for deconstructive deconstructive readings, because basically what they do is they don't, they tend not to make the point, but to spend at least as much energy undermining the point that seems to be um, being made. So those are for affinities and differences. um, It seems to me alchemy probably has connotations of alterity You know, alchemy makes the Middle Ages seem very far away and very distant from what we're doing. And that's, um, I tend to be stressing the opposite. I tend to be stressing intersections between the the pre and the postmodern.
1: Shakespeare is not French, but who else in the European medievalist canon shows up for you in your research? Um, And what places other than France might be of relevance? Great. Um, It's a hard question in a way, because
0: France didn't exist as France in the period that I'm talking about. And one of the ironies is that among 12th century writers, many who are writing in French are not associated with lands that have anything to do with the King of France. So, um, but that said, this is a pretty French book. Um, The good news, I hope, is that it was written for, that I'm focusing on French authors who are extremely influential outside, French authors and texts who are extremely influential outside of the French tradition. So, um, Chrétien de Troyes, of course, with his Arthurian fiction, but also Guillaume de Machot had, was very important for Chaucer amongst others. I'm looking at texts like *Baltanuva de Brua* from the 12th century, which became a pan-European phenomenon, was translated into countless languages, etc. So, I'm hoping that, in particular, English medievalists, but then, but also medievalists concerned with other tradition, would find in this book um, work on French authors who who really did influence the text that they are more directly studying. Should say too, the relation of England and the British Isles to French texts is always more complicated. So, for example, in Chapter Two, I talk about the Homme de Silence, which is written in Old French, but is it's a like many um, like many uh, 12th, 13th, etc. century texts. It's written likely in um, in modern day England. And I should say, too, that in my newer work, I'm thinking, I'm really trying to branch out more into texts that are not only either not written in French or not written in what would be the modern-day hexagon.
1: What authors from the medieval period are crucial for your audience to read if they want to understand everything? Mm-hmm. Great.
0: Um so this in this book there are really two giants or two the the two largest figures are Chrétien de Troyes, who's the founder of Arthurian romance in French and was writing in the um late or the second half of the twelfth century, on the one hand, and Guillaume de Mechoux, who's a different ball game. On the other, Guillaume de Mechoux is Referred to by contemporary and later poets as the master, Le Maître. Guillaume de Machaud writes these long, fairly long, allegorical first person texts that incorporate lyric poetry that are much hazier, more dream vision, more internal. And these two, these are two of the most, very most important, if not two of the two most important authors of the uh, French Middle Ages, and they haven't been studied together before. So those are the two authors who I'm in particular engaging with from the late medieval period. There are other major figures who do play an important um, part in this book, and in particular to Jean Froissart, where I look at one of his, uh, one of his d La prison amoureuse, and Christine de Pizan. Christine de Pizan being um, an extremely influential uh, writer who was most active in the, the very beginning of the 15th century. Um, it seems to me that Machaud, Guillaume de Machaud has been a, really a major interest uh, of scholars for the last several decades. And teaching Machaud is quite hard Whereas Chrétien almost the opposite. Um, it's, it seems to me that it's more or less the opposite, where that Chrétien's texts work great in the classroom, but have become less the focus of research than they once were. And it seems like
1: there's a lot more um, to do there. How did you incorporate feminist methodology rather than a patriarchal reading of some of the text? It's a great question and
0: unfortunately i don't really think it's possible to do one without the other and i think that realizing that is important to feminist politics so what i'm not doing is adjudicating i'm not calling some writers queer some writers feminist some writers anti-feminist i don't think i don't think these labels are stickers that work very well and i think doing so can uh, prevent more well more nuanced and critical discussion with students and sometimes with colleagues i mean there's i'm always debating whether t- different texts are subversive of patriarchy or complicit with it and i don't think you can ignore this binary and i don't think you should but i also don't think you're ever going to get really one or the other. And so what does this add up to? Um, Judith Butler, one of her pieces that I discuss in this, uh, in this book, thinks about queerness as that which resists calculation. And I think that's what I'm going, working with that this book Defines an anti patriarchal reading as one that works against established truths or received truths that are associated with establishments. And what I do is I kind of run my head against them.
1: What other kinds of structural politics do you include in courtly and queer? It's a, another
0: good question, especially given the. The increasing interest in questions of intersectionality in um, in medieval French studies. Well, at one level, I would say gender and sexuality are not the same thing. And this book is more about the latter than the former. And so what it's in particular interested in is how desire does not really make sense. Desire is not fixed to objects in the way we might want to think about it and so forth. Um, Medieval French studies is increasingly thinking about issues of race in exciting ways. And I hope that will figure into future work of mine. Sometimes issues of class and status crop up in this book. And so for example, in um, discussion on in chapter two, I talk about how the the narrator's kind of bizarre statements about people who are born of a lower um, status don't really add up, and how that relates to his um, his subversion of the male gaze. Similar thing with Silent, uh, with the Roman de Silence, also in chapter two. I talk about how the assertion of class politics is in my view, being undermined by essentially by the gender trouble that the romance emphasizes. I should say, you know, that I think this, how this book tends to conceive of, of subversion is like a sort of bowling ball that runs over different different categories. So that if you're, Subversive in terms of gender or and or sexual politics, then the subversion is going to spill out in d- different directions into issues of class and status, for example. And that's something that's probably not entirely right. So that it's certainly possible to mobilize well, mobilize subversive practices in more problem in more problematic ways. So being subversive in one Framework is a way of not being subversive in another. But I also think it's unlikely that this idea that subversion is kind of like a bowling ball, that once it starts rolling, it just destroys what's around it. It's not entirely wrong either. And um, it's this book is harnessing that kind of energy. So starting with the subversion related to desire in particular and letting it Move in different directions.
1: Are there trends that you found in the plot of some of these writings, and how are they related?
0: What interests me most about the plots of these texts is that they are not very straight or straightforward. And so this is... Medieval, in particular, verse romance thematizes this issue that um, a colleague, Srnka Stuhuljak, is called attention to, which is the interest in the straight path, la droite voie. And what interests me in these texts is how unstraight they are, how they're not really going, moving forward in a straightforward way. How there's all sorts of stuff that doesn't add up. So, I mean, the. The trends that I found in the plots are that the plots are or that that what interests me is how it's not linear and how it's it's every step forward is also two steps to the side.
1: Hmm. And why did you include the psychic life of power?
0: right so this is judith butler's um wonderful text and i included it because it's great um it for me it very usefully thinks figures out how to think together or bring together ideological politics and psychoanalysis um in useful ways and so her premise is that neither is really right so we're not just subjects of power as someone like Althusser um, would have it, right? So we're not, we're not, it's not, the subject is not only, or we are not just subjected to the interests of power, but we're also not just subjects in the more psychoanalytic sense, whereby we would be complex um beings with our individual desire and which what Judith Butler's seems to me is trying to do in this volume is thinking the two together that resonated with me in particular um it resonated I found it useful to think of to bring uh Butler's volume into dialogue with Christine de Pizan which is where courtly and queer begins and also ends in a way chronologically. So it's the last text. It's the latest text I talk about, but the one I begin with. And Butler is interested in how the condition of being subjected to power and the condition of being um, a, a desiring subject, how they are simultaneously produced. And I thought that was a productive lens for thinking about Christine in particular, because the messiness of her of her subjectivity is often downplayed by critics. It seems to me she's made into a more straightforward, less complex voice. Um, she's made into a very unitary, singular voice in one way. And so I found Butler's uh, work helpful to resist that. And then I thought it was general, um, generally useful for thinking about medieval literature. Um, there's a narrative that the, in the Middle Ages, the modern subject, the modern eye was gradually being born. And he in particular was being born in literary texts. The modern author was being born. And what I'm interested in is how this Emergence of the subject is also comes hand in hand with a gradual with a questioning of the subject and what Butler does so um, so cleverly is think is really attack the premises of the construct of the subject and that's what I think medieval literature is doing too or these courtly texts at least. <laughs>
1: Can you show us moments when sexuality, whether illicit or implied sex, is happening or present? This book
0: is not about... Well, it's probably fair to say that this book is, in general, not about specific illicit sexual behaviors. What I'm not spending my time doing is reading through the lines and saying... Something else is actually, well, or n- not saying in a direct way, something else is actually happening, which we can then identify. What I, that said, I am interested in illicit sexual behavior in the Middle Ages that isn't necessarily illicit today, and then how these stories written in verse treat it. So, examples of that in- include the question of which I treat in chapter four is very worried about the problem of immoderate marital sex, which is apparently um, very worrying to the uh, 12th century church. Um, his which I also treat in chapter four is also engaging with kind of specific questions of deviant desire in the middle ages. And in particular, the, question of impotence caused by sorcery, which is obviously not something we particularly worry about today. Um, But more generally, what I'm interested in is how is the discursivity of desire. So what that means is how desire is like language, because desire is language. Um, It's how you can't express what you mean. And the more you express yourself in a way then the less you say what you mean and you also express things you don't mean to and so forth and so that's um that's how this book in particular um conceives of illicit sexual behavior or illicit desire
1: also what about deconstructive irony how is schlegel's *Lucinda* an example of this deconstructive irony
0: Um, Good
1: question. Deconstructive irony I talk
0: about in the final chapter of this book, even though in a way I'm talking about it everywhere. Um, What I mean by deconstructive irony is the opposite of how irony tends to be conceived, at least by medievalists. So irony is often thought of as like a joke that the author knows that he's making for someone, and then someone either the, the audience either understands or some of the audience understands, some of the audience doesn't understand the joke that he or she is making. And deconstructive irony invites us to think about irony in in a way, the opposite way, and to focus on the jokes or tricks that the author isn't trying to make and that don't really have punchlines. So what does this mean? It means thinking about author, or irony, not as a feather in the author's cap, not as a skill that he or she is wielding, not even as a literary technique necessarily, but as a way of a text expressing our inability to control meaning or to kind of find the hidden rabbit of a joke. So what that means is that... Um, Deconstructive irony focuses on how there isn't um, that irony is about the the our inability to control meaning and um, and our inability to find in a way the punchline of a joke
1: because there isn't one. And how then are narrators represented in? some of your readings. Are they strong or weak-willed narrators? Yeah. Um, I think this began
0: as a project about narrators. Um, I think that's probably how my dissertation advisor would have described where it, um, where it initially was. The, and so it features really a lot of colorful narrators um, almost in every text. And a big part of their colorfulness, of their zaniness, is their engagement with their limitations or their um, sort of self-conscious staged passivity. So what that means is that they're, well, if these are strong-willed narrators, they're not very good at being strong-willed. And what's fun for me to look at is how they're, well, ironic presences, not in a more positivist way, but in a more deconstructive way, is staging something about the, the, the limitations um, of the text that they feature in.
1: Do you ever reach a singularity in terms of breaking, for example, the Ancelot tells systemic doubling? or all the juxtapositions that you mentioned, dichotomies? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the
0: Ancelot Tales, you're referring to Paternope de Blois in the second chapter, and that's um, not my phrase. That's the Penny Ely's phrase, a different critic. But I am very... You're absolutely right. I'm, what I'm interested in is in doubling as a place of generating possibility or messiness. So how repetition works um, to bring different and incompatible things into conversation in ways that um, don't really add up and then it's a it's a really it's a good question is there a singularity that then can be recuperated um, or another way of phrasing it seems to me the question you're asking is um, is the equation of multiplicity and subversion a little too easy. And I'm sure it is to some extent that the um, multiplicity, duplicity, et cetera, and subversion um, do not, that the relationship would need to be troubled, could be troubled a little bit more, although there must be some truth in that the um, duplicity, multiplicity, et cetera, lay the groundwork for the possibility of, um, of subversion. Um, I, I do think that in general, in this book, if I'm arguing against notions more, more theoretic than anything else of straightness, then it makes it hard for me to get to singularity as I see singularity and straightness as going
1: together. And that's what I'm arguing against. Are there other genres outside of romance that are associated with courtly writing or no? Uh, yes. So I mean,
0: half of this book is about romance and half of it is about D, which are less known outside of the field, even though they've been quite studied in um, amongst medievals, French medievalists since the, really the seventies is when it took off. Um, and so these are, um, the D is, it's, all these medieval genres are, or defining medieval genres poses real problems and whether or not, you know, whether or not it's a smart thing to even be trying to do, uh, is, well, is, is a question worth addressing, but in any case, these D, um, There are D in the 13th century. One critic, uh, her name is Monique Léonard in France, has worked on earlier D. And what I'm interested in is D, um, the D of Guillaume de Mechoux and the D indebted to the work of Guillaume de Mechoux. And so again, these are, tend to be several thousand lines of verse, um, tend to be in the first person, tend to be about the 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 a love affair but then also not really be about the love affair because nothing essentially nothing ever happens and or very little happens and these texts tend to get sidetracked by literary questions and so I'm interested in how that the kind of how these texts get sidetracked by literary questions how that relates to um and how that it does not replace, but in a way further troubles their representations of desire.
1: And what about prose versus poetics? How much prose is present versus poetic? Yep. So I'm
0: sympathetic to the argument that verse means different things for these two different genres or at different times. And what that means is that these verse romances, Chrétien de Troyes's verse romances, for example, were taking off before prose had taken off in French, before anyone was writing in prose. And whereas Guillaume de Meshaud's D and later D come come to be at a time when um, prose romance is a major phenomenon. And so the stakes of writing in verse then are quite different. So for, with Chrétien de Troyes, he's not choosing to write in verse, not prose, because writing in verse is what people do. Whereas with someone like Hume de, de Machaut, the choice means something different because um, because there is that other option of prose. Um, that said, you know, I do think the, the book is persistently negotiating with... The opposition of poetry to narrative. Um, narrative, it seems to me fair to say, in the modern world is overwhelmingly, in the modern West, is overwhelmingly associated with prose. But what I'm interested in here is how many of the most interesting, compelling, and important features of medieval narratives actually seem to be coming from lyric poetry. Which is the one thing that modern narratology is, you know, is saying is not narrative, and what I mean by this is that um, these verse narratives are particularly interesting in how they're not going somewhere really, um, and how they're not, um, in fact, they're precisely not going somewhere, and then also how they're not really beginning somewhere or being somewhere. There are different planes that are mirroring each other and so forth. And I, I think that these kind of fundamental features of medieval narratives actually, and quite counterintuitively, come from their engagement with lyric poetry.
1: Why do you use the sorcerer Merlin as a primary example? You mentioned impotency in relation to sorcery. Um, I... I'm just fond of some of the film adaptations of Merlin and King Arthur, because there were some of them, or many of them. Yeah.
0: Um, well, other people think about Mer- Merlin more than I do, right? Or give it a bit more central role in their work. And I even have a wonderful graduate student who's thinking about uh, the relationship of Merlin to, modern disability studies in really fascinating ways. And so, yeah, other, other people work where Merlin appears in my text is in, um, discussion of the romance of silence. And what Merlin does here is he only shows up at the end and he shows up at the end in a way, because the romance needs somebody to figure things out. It needs to set things straight, right? But how Merlin does so is as Merlin. So he does in a very artificial, nasty, humorous, disruptive way. And I argue that, um, that therefore in this text, he's at the same time as he's solving the problem, he's showing how the problem can't be solved in any sort of, um, well, either realistic or
1: serious way. And Given the time period, are there other film adaptations that have come out of topics from some of the readings that you've mentioned or theater productions? Yeah. Um, Well,
0: for the question of medieval theater and gender politics and even theater more generally, I would very enthusiastically recommend uh, the work of my friend and colleague, Noah Gwynn, and his um, recent text, Pure Filth. I think films can often raise and trouble the alterity of the Middle Ages or how different it is um, from the modern period. Um, It seems to me that films can present the differences between... They can kind of say that just saying the Middle Ages are fundamentally different and fundamentally primitive is too easy and we need to do a lot more and so i'm thinking in particular a few weeks ago with the i taught the french cult classic from the early 90s called les visiteurs the visitors and it's about a a, a knight and his squire from the middle ages who magically show up in the modern era and things don't well things don't both do and don't work out so well, and it's a it's a stupid comedy, but the, that's the point, right? And the point is that in a way, it calls out or identifies the stupidity of calling the Middle Ages stupid, and it also points to more insidious forms of our well stupidity in different ways. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I do think film is quite useful for for this question for nuancing the question of the our distance from the middle ages
1: myths show up in other places of courtly and queer which ones do you feel comfortable mentioning here that are great examples of structuring lyric poetry
0: yeah um in the third chapter no second chapter I talk about how Jean Foisal uses the myth of Phaeton from um, Ovid. And he's the son of Apollo and he wants to prove his paternity by driving Apollo's chariot, which is the, the sun. And he really can't, right? He can't hold it together. And so Foisal takes this story and he has his character invent a kind of zany symbolic reading of it. And so he's going to say, well, this is story is actually about love. And then he's going to identify different elements of the story with different qualities about love. So he's going to say that when Phaeton is driving the chariot, the chariot represents its imprudent pleasure. And then the horses represent qualities like, abstract qualities like youth or happy thoughts or futility. And if you're thinking this doesn't make that much sense, I mean, that's why it interests me, right? That the gloss, the, the interpretation doesn't add up. And the story is about, and his, Phaeton's inability to control the chariot, the chariot It's about things spiraling out of control and i argue that that's kind of what this gloss is doing too and then i also argue that that's how the text that it um, appears in the text that it, it gets pride of place in insofar as it's the it's where the text ends um, which is jean foucauld's prison amoureuse so I, I i argue that you know that this what the myth ends up symbolizing is how driving this text on a straight course keeping this text on a straight course is impossible. And I argue that that says something about courtly literature and the love that it features uh, more generally.
1: What about the use of the term economy? Is that something you made up or is that a part of the literature on this topic? Yeah. um, So I use
0: if I'm not mistaken, the term economy and think about it in um, readings of Jean, Jean Renaud's roman de la Rose de Guillaume de Doile. And this text is a particularly self-conscious text. So it's a text that's always, that's included, incorporating the works of others. It's a text that you, where you really can't miss that it's talking about itself, that it's talking about literature. It's talking about language. But one of the strange features of this text that many critics have noted is that it's also there's more economic realism than one encounters in most other texts. So it's describing how much things cost and how people pay for them and so forth. And the then the question people have asked is how do the two go together, right? I mean, why, if this text is not is about literature, how can it also be Kind of introducing this uh, this significant element of realistic depiction of of economic circumstances, and what I say is, well, you know, this is kind of a false opposition because that language and if the, if the text is interested in language and literature and the how money works, it's because they. There, there is a, a lot of similarity and that's what this text is highlighting. So that the it's highlighting an economy where things are constantly circulating but n- never really possessed by people. And I argue that that's kind of also what it's highlighting about language, how language is never really possessed. Language is always something that we exchange. Or in other words, um, this text is thinking about language as as, as signs And it's also thinking about money as signs. So it makes sense that the two uh, go together.
1: Do you have any critiques of the deeds or lyrics, whether from a medieval or modern perspective, and also just in general, were there frustrations for you when it came to all of the studying that you made?
0: Of course there are lots of frustrations right and I think there should be it isn't it isn't healthy I don't think and and or productive for the field if we all sit around telling each other you know how interesting everything everyone is doing is and doing so is certainly not at all queer right if one is defining queer as antagonistic um and always resisting calculation and so forth. So am I going to list my frustrations with the frustrations that I came across? No, but I mean, except for insofar as what this book is really throwing all its energy against are received narratives about these texts. And there are several received narratives about these texts. One that... First romances in D don't really have anything to do with each other. One that um, D are not really talking about desire or sex. Um, another that um, neither have much to do, that both are in some ways proto-heteronormative insofar as they're promoting the conceptions of love that they seem to be espousing. And I say, well... Those are also, you know, to a very important extent, untrue and worth, and certainly
1: worth, um, deeply challenging. Can you define canon law and what it has to do with red et Anide? Yep. Uh, so canon law is just, it's the church's
0: law. And it came, it um, really emerged as a major force <laughs> in the, 12th century with um with uh, the emergence of uh, of the work of an author called well who may or may not um have actually written this uh code of laws called the Decretal, which was then comment uh, supplemented commented etc and really was the bedrock of the catholic church's um legal uh well, legal uh, opinions for centuries. And in the Middle Ages, um, the Catholic Church had particular or was claiming um, jurisdiction over questions certainly of marriage, but then also of issues of desired sexuality more generally. And one of the things that crops up in canon law to a surprising extent I, I think from a modern audience is this denunciation of men who have too much sex with their wives or men who are too interested in having sex with their wives um, and that is also the plot of Eric Hénide which is Chrétien de Troyes first romance and so what happens is this knight finds rescues this um, poorer woman who you know does not really say that she wants to be rescued but he rescues her they get married and then he spends too much time in bed with her and i'm arguing that this romance is engaging with this question that was of utmost interest to the catholic church at the time and then also thinking about well why would the church and the romance then be so interested with it and then how is the romance precisely what is it saying about it and How is it using, um, you know, the, everything that makes literary techniques, everything that makes literature, literature to engage
1: with the question. Also, before we reach some of the last questions, do you want to acknowledge any of the people that you worked with or some of the archival material um, and institutions that might have been helpful for you? of course um, this project took a village um,
0: is what I think I my um, greatest debt of gratitude goes to Sarah Kay a formidable uh, figure in the field who was my dissertation advisor and I think I say this at the start of the book she was I, I think she was probably more patient with me than she should have been um, and I this book had um, benefited greatly from the, the really th- thoughtful feedback and generosity toward a younger <laughs> scholar of, in particular, uh, Deborah McGrady at the University of Virginia and Noah Gwyn at the University of California Davis, and from um, also from the the wisdom and generosity of Simon Gaunt, who is my colleague at. King's College London, and another really formidable uh, figure in the field who died suddenly um, a few years ago. So my certainly I acknowledge um, my gratitude toward them, and then I also acknowledge my gratitude toward um, I've had two jobs in my life, and I've been very lucky that they are two jobs where the students, and in particular the colleagues, are so supportive, um, inspirational, and just all around uh, wonderful to work with. And so that's the the Department of French at King's College London and the
1: Department of French and Italian at uh, CU Boulder. Do you want to recommend any outside reading, whether of other academics or people who you think would be relevant for the new books network audience.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I tend to think that, um, the biggest error in medieval studies would be to think that in either literary or political terms, we're done with asking the most fundamental questions. Um, I think that I am in kind of literary terms, thinking of the, the, the amazing work by uh, Roger Dragonetti, so it's spelled like Dragon, then E T T I, was a Swiss medievalist who was interested in the just general deviance of the poetics of medieval texts. I, you know, I, I think I got a, a on some article at some point recently. I got a. You know, one of the reports said that I was summoning some figures from the history of criticism referring to feminist medievalists. And I think that the, kind of where this book begins in a way or what makes this book possible and also what I'm arguing against to some extent, but what um, this book is in dialogue with the really tremendous feminist medievalism, medieval work of the 1990s. And I think, so I'm thinking of Roberta Kruger's work, I'm thinking of Simon Gaunt's work, I'm thinking of Peggy McCracken's, Helen Solterer's, and so forth. And I think that going back to, um, to, the, to these kind of foundational texts from the 90s and the early 2000s is, can help the field find its purpose. And it's a very, very important thing to be doing.
1: Are you holding any in-person seminars or meet-and-greets? How can people reach out to you in person? No, uh, people can email me. by all my information
0: is on uh, the CU's um, Department of French and Italian website, and yeah, that's for sure the best way to get in touch with me.
1: And what about your future research goals? Do you are you writing anything now? Yeah, we well, think-
0: started a, a new project on. Um, which is fairly advanced uh, on sexual consent. And so, if Courtly and Queer is kind of arguing against the critical meta narrative that these medieval texts are heteronormative avant la lettre or that they have nothing to do with heteronormativity, I'm arguing against both. This is arguing, this new project is arguing against the narrative that the history of sexual consent is one of progress that it's just kind of gotten generally better and better and that sexual consent is something that we should be um, that we're getting close to holding up to the position that it you know rightfully should be in in our era. Um, I think that the issue with that narrative is twofold. One is it does um, is it doesn't do justice to how surprisingly sophisticated repre- uh, reflections on sexual consent are in medieval French literature and the law. Um, so I'm studying that, and I'm also asking the question of what does allowing a more complex um, take on sexual consent on the part of medieval society, medieval culture. what is that, what does that change for us today? And the argument there is that it um, depicts the history of sexual consent is more ambivalent than we want to or having a more ambivalent relationship to feminist progressive politics. and that that, that has a historical dimension and also a theoretical one that the concept of sexual consent, should not just be this following the light of other theorists but should not be amalgamated with progressive politics the consent can do some things and it can't do others and thinking about uh, what it can and using medieval literature to think about what it can and cannot
1: do today is what uh, i'm interested in new books network and your host nathan moore want to thank charlie samuelson for coming in today to talk to us about his book Courtly and Queer: Deconstruction, Desire, and Medieval French Literature. To hear more episodes from the New Books Network, please subscribe or visit the website.